if I am creating a new word, I want it to feel very natural. I don't want it to sound like it's a planet from Star Trek. This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. Today's episode is brought to you by Writer, an all-in-one AI writing assistant for teams. Writer allows teams to create a single source of truth for brand terms that is easy to build, edit, and share. It integrates seamlessly with Chrome, Google Docs, Word, Outlook, and now offers a plugin that brings automated brand consistency directly to Figma. Go to writer.com, yes, that's W-R-I-T-E-R.com, and see what Writer can do for your team. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Writers in Tech. My name is Yuval. I'm the founder of the UX Writing Hub and the host of this podcast. And I'm very happy to have here a very special guest. His name is Anthony Shore. Anthony is the creator of Operative Words, which is an agency for naming stuff, naming basically companies and building strategies based on the name of those companies and operations. And I find this topic extremely interesting. And that's why I invited Anthony and he was kind enough to agree to join us today. Anthony, how are you? I'm very well, Yuval. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you so much for being a guest here today. So I know that you have quite of a background in writing. So let's start from the beginning. What's your history is like? Let's see. Well, I've always been obsessed with words, the written word. In fact, as a child, my favorite book was the was a dictionary my parents got me when I was a young child. And I would obsess over words and definitions and especially word origin. This dictionary had a glossary in it of proto-Indo-European roots. And so it goes way, way back to look at language histories and their relationships in the Indo-European language family. And I was always fascinated how a single syllable in a language spoken 5,000 years ago could become dozens and dozens of words as the language evolved. So it started as Proto-Indo-European and then maybe evolved into Old Latin and then into Latin and then into New Latin, Modern Latin and then Italian and then also simultaneously from Latin into French and Portuguese and so on. And so a single syllable uttered 5,000 years ago was so generative that a single utterance could become dozens of different words that had similar senses but ultimately different meanings. And the generative power of language was something I was always fascinated with. So I got my start, I guess you could say professionally. Well, I was a linguist in college. I studied linguistics mm-hmm. there, studied dead languages like Latin and Proto-Indo-European. And then my first professional job was doing typesetting. So I was immediately professionally engaged in the written form of words. Wait, what's typesetting? Typesetting, yeah, something that's something you don't really hear about anymore, even though it's something that is kind of done on the desktop, right? So, you know, you type something into InDesign or into Illustrator or Word, and you want it to look good. And so it used to be that when magazines and books or posters were created, you know, they didn't have a WYSIWYG system like we have today. That is what you see is what you get. So when you have 72-point Garamond, it looks like that on screen. But it used to be that the typesetting systems first used a piece of metal, 
And then when I was engaged in it, it was something called a photomechanical typesetting system. And so what you had were pictures of alphabets on film and the light would shine through the letters onto photographic paper. And those that film would rotate such that different letters would appear and light would shine such that it would create a photographic image of the text that you wanted. And then that text had to be processed in a photographic process, development process. Yeah. And that's what I did. I helped to create sort of magazines and publications using this photomechanical process so that all the type that you would read was type that I had typed into a terminal. And it was a terminal where everything looked exactly the same. The letters didn't look different, no matter what size, what font. And you would tag it. So it was a lot like HTML and writing in ASCII, you know, in ASCII text. And you don't know what it looks like until you see it rendered, right? And that's that was how I got my start professionally doing that. I also did something that historians called paste up. And that's where you would literally put wax or glue on pieces of paper and mount them onto boards. And maybe you would draw lines using tape, okay, physically, you know, to create borders around photographs, for example. And all of this would ultimately be photographed and created into a publication. And that's how I got my start professionally. I evolved into doing... Um, fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. And it was, I guess it was a real craft. You know, we had to use exacto blades and materials called ruby lith and some really toxic solvent called bestine that would, I think it ended up causing nerve damage in people and they don't really use it anymore. You know, so it feels like it's 19th century stuff, but I'm afraid it was actually you know, late, late 20th century stuff or moderately late 20th century stuff. I was doing this in the 90s, I guess, 80s and 90s, late 80s, early 90s that I was doing that. And that was a great springboard because I got a job in an advertising agency doing typesetting for them and then moving into copywriting and doing ad conceptualization, writing headlines and things like that. It was there that I had my first assignment naming things. I named things for a new hotel. I also did work at a software company where I was in charge of marketing communications. I also did UX writing there. I was in charge of user interface and looking at the words on the user interface and making sure buttons were labeled with the right words. I was in charge of making sure packaging had the right instructions on them and that they were worded correctly. So I was responsible for all of that for a software company. And the company was called Aladdin Systems, Aladdin Systems. Mm -hmm. And they were best known for a product called Stuff It. Now, Stuff It was an archiving format on the Macintosh computer. So it's similar to what zip is today. With the zip file format where you can take many files and put them into a single archive file, as Stuff It was the zip of its day for the Macintosh. And eventually zip became dominant moving from PCs to Mac and now zip is still the dominant format. But there's other archiving formats too that are used in, in units. So that's what I did for that software company. And I was there for three and a half years and it was a great experience because being on the client side, you're really seeing how your words make a difference. And some of that was very obvious where I was responsible for writing direct mail. And so I was writing junk mail, you know, to send out offers and I would write three or four different envelopes, send those out to people and we'll see what gets the best response. And then I would rewrite that envelope. And so you got to really see how your words can make a difference in motivating people 
to buy a product, right? Or writing words in such a way that it either resulted in or didn't result in getting tech support calls or customer service calls because people were confused, right? So that was very instructive and helped me appreciate the importance of words in how understanding how people really perceive something in a certain way and how names can influence them to do you know what you want them to do specifically operating a product as it's intended to right or motivating them to buy a product so that was a very strong real world experience because the linguistics background in so far as naming goes is very useful however you know it, it, linguistics can get a little academic it can seem far off and not necessarily relevant but when you have that kind of background and you bridge it together with this boots on the ground experience of words motivating people to do the right thing, you hope. That's what's so very important, I think, for having a good grounding in doing name development, which is what I do most of the time now. Wow, what a story. I have so many follow-up questions here. And that's amazing. First of all, like I wanted to ask about the type of challenges that you had back then related to UX writing, for example, in a software company in the mid early 90s. That's something that I'm really fascinated about. And then I will move to the other follow-up questions. But uh, yeah, what was the challenges back then, for example? So this company developed mostly utility software for operating your Macintosh. And, you know, it included Zip, but included other useful tools for using your Macintosh and making it work better for you. And so I had to do things. Well, part of it was naming, helping to name, name the products themselves. Part of, it, part of it was also designing icons. Which, is, which was also my responsibility. There was a visual component to that, to my job as, as well. We used something called ResEdit, an old piece of software to, to create icons. But writing was things like, what do we call this feature? You know, how do we label the menu? Some of it was about organization. How do you group features together in a way that's very efficient? For example, if you use Microsoft Word on a Mac, you know, the sort feature is located under table. For some reason, and I have to alphabetize lists all the time. And so I have to go to the table menu in order to go to sort. And that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Right. And so when you're designing menus and features and organizing them and clustering them, you want to do it in a way that's intuitive. And eventually you can learn, you know, even if it's even if it's counterintuitive in the way Microsoft has done, you know, with its features. So a lot of it was about naming features, labeling them in a way that would be most intuitive. There were also instructions, user guides that I helped to write. And I didn't write them all myself. We would hire technical writers because I'm not very good with big blocks of copy. You know, I'm, I'm six words or fewer is really my 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 sweet spot. <laughs> So taglines, headlines, things like that, and names too, and nomenclature systems also. But writing user guides, but I would edit them. I would also help to write features on, on packaging. So retail sales of packaging was important. And so people would pick up a box and they would look at the screenshots. We had call outs. How do you write those call outs in a way that are going to be compelling and transparent and persuasive? right? These are some of the things. I also did a lot of demos for the company. So I would go to Macintosh user groups and I would show off this feature in person or a new piece of software in person. And, you know, I would show it, it was being projected onto a screen. Hopefully it wouldn't crash and also trade shows. And I also helped to write the scripts for trade shows. So when someone has a question 
what is the phrasing that you should ideally be drawing from when you answer a question, you know, so that we're consistent and honest and showing the software in the best possible light. That was something else that was a part of my job and how writing came into, into the frame of that position. Whoa. That's so impressive. That's amazing because like many people, many UX writers do it today without understanding that people were facing these type of challenges so long ago in different software companies, which is pretty awesome because we didn't have as many software companies as we have today. I have another follow-up question that, uh, that related to the fact that you said something about the connection between being a linguist in linguistics, like learning uh, about it. And then practically doing that. So can you share with me more about like uh, the connection between the theory to the hands-on stuff? And um, yeah. maybe how did you do that? Yeah, that's a great question. So linguistic, linguistics is the study of language generally. And there are linguists who know many, many different languages. I am not that linguist. I'm a linguist. I know Latin pretty well, and I know about language change well. I know about the sound systems of language like and writing systems, right? So I know that how Hebrew, how words are created in Hebrew is fundamentally different from how words are created in English or in you know Chinese or right or German. And so I understand those differences. For me, linguistics is an incredibly useful tool on a pervasive basis because, It enables me to have a strong command of techniques for word creation. So specifically things, an aspect of linguist is called morphology, which is about the form and creation of words. So you may have like a root, but then you can add something to it like a suffix or a prefix. And I know Hebrew and Arabic morphology work very differently than this. But the ability to draw on bringing in, for, uh, for instance, different roots from, say, different suffixes and apply them to a word in a way that feels very natural. So, for example, if I am creating a new word, I want it to feel very natural. I don't want it to sound like it's a planet from Star Trek. Okay, you know, something that feels just totally alien, like otherworldly, because names, even if it's a new word that feels linguistically natural, that doesn't feel forced or contrived, a name like that is more likely to be trusted, believed, have credibility and be adopted and propagated versus something that feels totally alien. Okay, so I'll give you I'll give you an example of this on a project. I was tasked with a client. Now, I have a client named RWDC, and they make a special kind of polymer that's based on a molecule called PHA. And this molecule and this polymer enables a company to create single-use plastics like straws and forks that will degrade naturally without creating any microplastics or anything harmful. They, de they degrade naturally under all conditions, creating only carbon dioxide and water. And so these materials can create very safe single-use utensils and straws. Now, you would think that this, and this material, PHA, by the way, is present in all bacteria everywhere. It's in a source of energy for bacteria. So it's prevalent anyway, right? But now they found a way to create single-use straws and forks out of it. So they said to me, you know what? We can't call this compostable. 
We cannot call it biodegradable because there is no scientific consensus on what those words mean. And companies have greenwashed those terms to death. They claim things are compostable when really they're only industrial compostable. That is, they have to be put under high pressure and heat. And biodegradable also doesn't have a scientific consensus. It's sometimes regulated, sometimes not. So they say, we need a new word to describe this process and this type of material. because, And we need something that we can own so others can't use it and dilute what its meaning is. And so they say, we need a new scientific term. So I created for them the term biovanescent, biovanescent and biovanescence. And it means biologically vanishing, okay? This is a material that ultimately degrades because it's ingested by bacteria and it does so in a way that's perfectly safe. So biovanescent and biovanescence was adopted by them. And this was a term I developed thanks to my background and expertise in morphology and Latin and in word creation. And it feels like a scientific term, you've never heard it before, that should have existed, but simply doesn't. And it has, it has credibility to it because it's actually drawn on real Latin roots. And I combine a Latin prefix with a Latin root, right? I'm not combining it with something that's Greek or something that's English, right? Because that would feel unnatural, right? People don't, you know, people don't realize that they know a lot more about languages than they realize because if you put together an English root with a Latin root, it's gonna, it often sounds kind of weird or contrived, okay? And so that's an example of how an expertise in linguistics is very useful for creating a new term. And this term, biovanescent, you can Google it. It was unveiled by Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man unveiled it to the world because his, venture, cap yeah, his venture capital company, Footprint Coalition, was an investor in RWDC, and he unveiled it to the world. And so you can go look. There's a, a, a Vimeo a YouTube of Robert Downey Jr. In, in unveiling Biovanescent to the world, which is you know a real thrill and honor to have that happen to a word that I was... I only know Tony Stark himself talked about your term. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's one of the coolest things that I've had happen to one of my names. The other is that a name I helped develop is on Mars, Qualcomm Snapdragon. What? Yeah, Snapdragon, which is a chipset by Qualcomm, is on the Mars Ingenuity helicopter. And it's been up there now you know, for a year or so. So um, another, another honor to have my name in, in history that way. Snapdragon, that's a good name. Thanks. Wow, that's some fascinating stuff. You're opening my mind right now to a world that as much as I felt like I know something about, I feel right now like I don't know nothing about it, which is a good thing. Like I'm curious so much right now to, I don't know, open a few books and learn about it, which is amazing. Thank you for sharing, first of all, your a few you know, examples and the connection between linguistics and your daily work. So the things that you do, naming, you know, is very specific and you can't, you know, learn about it online. It's not that you can right now go somewhere and Google how to name things and you'll get the right answer. There is some kind of a very interesting process behind what you do. And I'm curious to know what your process is like. So the process is fairly straightforward, and it's something that I've helped, that I've worked on refining over the years. Naming project, a typical project looks like this. I'll start off, <clears throat> once we have our contract worked out, I'll sit down with the client, key decision makers, for about an hour, 
and we will discuss their company or product, whatever it is that we're naming. They would have already sent me background material so I can get up to speed and ask smart questions. So we talked for about an hour and I really wanna understand what is it that makes this company or product different? I also wanna know where is the product going to be sold? Where are the customers? What is the long-term trajectory, the long-term roadmap of the product or company? Because I want to make sure that the names I'm offering will never become obsolete. You know, I get a lot of work because a company named themselves Descript, and as it turns out, they've outgrown that, right? So I want to make sure the names will stand the test of time. So after we talk for about an hour, I will go away for a few days and I will distill everything I learned that's important for me and my team into name objectives. And these are carefully worded bullet points that succinctly articulate what should the name support or connote and any other parameters around it, such as it's going to be marketed in these countries. They, even though it's going to be focused on one thing initially, it may broaden its focus to these other things later on, uh, and so on and so forth. I also want to learn when I'm in this briefing with the client and incorporate into the objectives, how does the client feel about names? What are their personal opinions about names? Because naming is subjective. There is no such thing as objective naming. It's impossible to make it not subjective. So I want to know ahead of time that someone, for instance, likes a certain style of name, right? For example, I already know that when you go into this, that, that certain regions like certain names that are different. For example, if I'm naming a product for Europe, I'm going to be putting in more coined words into it, right? If I'm naming something for an English-speaking region like the United States, I'm going to be putting more real English words in there right? Because I know a European audience, they tend to be more receptive to these Latinate kind of made up words. So once the name objectives are complete, I put, you know, all those things in there, I send it to the client and with their approval, then name development begins. And name development happens in two waves. The first is a mile wide and an inch deep. And the second is an inch wide and a mile deep. So my team and I will be heads down for about two weeks doing nothing but name creation. And we do it independently. I'm not a big believer or practitioner in group brainstorms. For naming, I think it's a waste of time, by and large. You need to do individual development. And over mm -hmm. the course of several weeks, my team and I will develop easily in excess of a thousand names, sometimes several thousand names. Wow. And that doesn't even include when I'm using other software tools that will go ahead and combine a list of roots and a list of, of suffixes and then do permutations on them. And it doesn't include when I avail myself looking at corpus linguistics, that is a database of 35 billion words that have been indexed in order to look at how words co-locate. So if a client wants to be perceived as fast, I'd like a, I use a special database that can give me a list of 1,500 words that live next to the word fast or might fall into a structure such as as fast as blank. And then I can find... 200 words as fast as blank. And so I'm tapping kind of into the minds of millions of people by using these special corpus linguistics resources. So thousands of names have been developed. After a couple of weeks, I will look at that and I will pick what I believe are the best 100 to 150 names 
typically 150 names. And then I give those to my trademark partner, Steve, and he will do a full search on those names and he'll look at names globally or wherever it's relevant, trademark databases, Google, and also looking at dot-coms. Now, for those who are wondering, the trademark matters much more than the domain. In fact, the domain barely matters because everyone finds you by using a search engine. So SEO is much more important. And people don't care if you have a descriptor like teslamotors.com. It's fine if it's not tesla.com, you know, and eventually you may be able to buy the name. So the trademark is really what matters here. So my trademark partner will search them and that list of 150 names will get reduced down to somewhere between like 50 and 70 names or 45, 40 and 60 or 70 names. And then those names are what I present to the client in the first round of work. I always present names in a real world context. So if they're a company that is changing their name, I will take their web page, I will Photoshop out their existing name, and then I will uh, drop in a new name. And I show the exact same exhibit on every one. I don't want to confound variables by changing type or changing color or changing context. So every name is presented exactly the same. So in our meeting, I will go through a little preamble I have to set expectations and let them know names aren't going to jump off a page. You're not going to know it when you see it. There is no one right name and certain other fundamentals of naming. And I'll go through the names and I will show them all and talk through their implications. This one has certain implications for messaging, look and feel, and clients sort of can cherry pick what they see and like in my rationale for a name. And they come up with their own rationale for why a name is good to them. I need to show all names before eliciting comments because your feelings about a name will change based on the other names you see. So if you name, if you see a name that feels you know, a little risky, but then I show a name that's much more dangerous later on, they may end up being feeling more comfortable with that name that was a little risky. Then I elicit feedback and comments, and that first round is the input for the second round, okay? And that second round is a mile, is an inch wide and a mile deep where I'm really focusing in on the kinds of names that were working for them. And this is essential to have a couple rounds of naming because it, it it's one thing to agree on name objectives which are abstract or creative brief, which is all abstract. What really matters is how people react to the actual available names that they see. That's what really matters. And so, you know, everyone's mind is a black box and naming is subjective. And so by showing them names, it reveals, it, it brings a little light into their thinking and their own feelings about names. And so that's why it's critically important. And so the first round of naming and screening will be three weeks. And then the second round of naming and screening is also three weeks. So the whole process is about seven weeks, give or take. And after I present that second round of work, the client will take a few names, maybe three or five. When you narrow it down from like stage A to stage B, so what numbers of names do we have in that phase? Yeah, so I've presented typically over 100 names across both rounds. They've seen 100 names. They will take three to five names to give to their lawyers to do a full search. <clears throat> and names do fall out because when I search 300 names, it's not nearly the kind of granularity and fuzziness that they do on a full search of names. So some names do fall out. And then they would ultimately choose one one final name from that. So the whole process is about seven weeks. That's amazing. So I wonder, let's say that this is the process of naming 
such an important topic, such as a company that includes so much in it. But let's say that we have people in our audience, UX writers, and they have the task of, for example, naming a, a feature or naming a button or categorize something and building some categories. What should be like their approach to that based on your methodology? I'd say yeah, if we could flesh it out to, to, to that thing, you know? Yeah, it is different coming up with that kind of language because your goal typically there is not to be distinctive, not to be legally available, but to communicate something useful, right? And I have a very pragmatic approach to naming it. And it starts with, you know, what is the function of the name? Is it to communicate clearly? Is it to capture attention? Is it to tell a story? And that really drives the form, that function drives the form of the name. So in this case, what you're looking at when you're naming features, you know, the first thing I consider is what do others call that feature? I'm a big believer in not creating things new when you don't have to. In fact, I'm a real, I oppose deeply to do something just for the sake of doing it differently if the real goal is to enact, is to enable people to understand something quickly, right? So I'm a big believer in adopting what others have done if it's similar, right? So you look at your competitors, what do they call comparable features? What do they call comparable menu options? And if there's an industry standard approach that people are used to doing, then by all means, that's what you should do. You know, I haven't written, you know, when I was doing software writing, our, we were on a Macintosh platform and Apple had really strong and clear guidelines for what you should, how you should describe things, how you talk about clicking buttons or pulling, you know, choosing something from a menu. They dictated that. And that is a fantastic idea because it ensures that on uh, within any given environment, you're not going to be surprised that suddenly the copy and paste menu is over somewhere else, you know, versus under the edit menu where it is on all these other things. So it enables something to be much more intuitive. And so that's the first step is to find out who else is using a comparable feature and where is it and what do they call it? And that's kind of my starting point. Now, let's say you have a new feature that's really new that others aren't doing. And then it's a creative exercise. And this exercise is like naming in which you are really looking at characterizing this in initially as many ways as possible. Because naming is at a certain level about achieving perspectives. It's about looking at something from every conceivable and inconceivable angle. And so if you're naming a new feature, I would advise doing the exact same kind of exercise where what are all the different ways that we can think about what this is, how it could be framed. That is, you know, what kind of words can we use to, to describe it or characterize it? And your first step, like with any creative exercise, should be generative. It is not about filtering. It is not about judging. It is about spending dedicated time just being imaginative and, and attempting to just develop as many different possibilities as possible for that one button or feature that you're naming. And you don't judge. And you come up with ideas that are ridiculous, that are absurd, that will not happen, as well as everything in between from there to things that are obvious and straightforward. And you do all of it. And then you take a step back and you start saying, okay, what's, what's 
what's viable here. You know, you may find that there's a greater cluster of viable ideas towards the safer and more obvious end of things. You also need to get buy-in from other people, right? And so I would adopt a strategy when you're coming up with ideas that you do your own development. You come up with as many ideas, dozens of ideas as you can. Then you reduce that to, you know, five, 10, 20 ideas. And then you share that with your colleagues. And usually I'll tell you, emailing is, is a terrible way to communicate and share names. This is People just want to piss on them, really, if you do that. People see it as an invitation to say no, no, no. So it's really best if you can do it in person or you do a live sharing of ideas and you unveil them one at a time and you talk through it. Oh, with this idea, you know, it says, with this idea, it says, and you want to order them sensibly. Maybe you start with the safe ideas and then you go, you know, increasingly further out or maybe you want to contrast them. Or maybe there's ideas where there's four ideas and they share a common word part. Well, you put those together so people can compare and contrast them easier. So you walk through them one at a time, you let them see the whole list, and then you elicit feedback. And when you elicit feedback, don't ask, you know, what. it's typically not about what you like, it's more about what's interesting to you. Now with features, it's maybe a little bit different in that you want something to be comfortable and easy and kind of a no-brainer unlike names, which are going to be more uncomfortable because they're by their nature new. But you do want to elicit that feedback of what's interesting to you. You know, what can you imagine working with here? And then you elicit feedback that way. And maybe you go back and you do more development if necessary following getting that feedback. You always mock it up though, put it in a real world context so people can suspend disbelief. So it looks like it's already a done deal. You know, you want it to look like a a complete when you show it. I have so many takeaways from this conversation right now about naming features, such as do your research and competitor analysis and check what others are doing. I think that's a fantastic tip. Also, not presenting in an email, but in context and actually some kind of a Zoom meeting or a live session. That's a tip that I adore. I love it. Yeah, and getting buy-in from others. That's perfect. I really love it. I think there is a lot of value here to many UX writers out there. So that's Amazing. You know, I didn't uh, warn you beforehand. I have an, a, an exercise that we're doing before the end of every episode where I ask the guest, I ask the guest, hey, how do you think we should name this episode? Because like I interview the most talented writers in the world. Now, you just talked to me about, you know, a very long naming process. And usually we don't end up choosing that name, actually, which is like completely different. But we're like bouncing ideas back and forth. So I didn't want to put you on the spot or anything like that, but I wanted you to know if like you up for that challenge. Uh, sure, sure. I'm not sure I'm clear on what the challenge is. The challenge is like me asking you, hey, how do you think we should name this episode? And then we're like bouncing back and forth ideas based on that. Talk a little bit and say, hey, we talked about linguistics and how to connect it to UX writing. We did talk about naming stuff, like the process of naming a feature. We did talk about basically that. So definitely I would choose like how to name a feature or naming a feature like a boss if I'm going a bit more, you know, adventurous and yeah, something like that. You know, maybe it's something like the wonderful world of naming. Wow. I love it. The wonderful world of naming. Yeah, it doesn't get too far into the details of what we're talking about, you know, naming companies of products, naming features, things like that. But I don't think you have to do that with this. I think you need a title 
that's going to be intriguing and create interest. And I think populating that headline with a word like wonderful is a way to do that. I think uh, we nailed it. I think uh, that's exactly the name that we're going to use. I knew I could trust someone like you to name this episode. <laughs> I mean, if I can't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. But people have their processes. You know, some people tell me, hey, you're putting me here on the spot. Usually I say to people that in advance, by the way. And then they're like, no, I need to like sit a little bit, write it down. I'm like, okay, for sure. You know, but uh, you nailed it. Well, I assure you, Yuval, in 15 minutes, I'm going to come up with a much better idea. And then I'm going to hate myself for giving you the idea I gave you. But, you know, that's creative for you. We're saying, hey, like we might bounce those ideas on email if you have those. And uh, we would love to, of course, listen. But I think we've nailed it for the first time, to be honest. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful name. And I want to thank you. Uh, Anthony, so much for being here with me today. It was a lot of fun. I learned a ton. Do you have a resource like linguistics for dummies or like how to start in linguistics for someone like me that don't know nothing about something very basic, I would say, like a book or something like that? I would have to research a good Mm -hmm. linguistics overview for you because I don't know one off the top of my head. My website at operativewords.com, I write a blog very occasionally, and I haven't updated it in over a year because I've written most of the stories I want to write. And so my blog at operativewords.com goes very deeply into the tactics of naming. It is a blog that's written for people who have to create names or who are responsible for judging names, such as product managers. And so it's very practical and tactical. So that is a great resource if you want to learn more about naming. I will also say that a book was very recently published by Rob Meyerson called Brand Naming. I actually make a very small cameo in it. And it is an excellent overview, kind of a one-stop shop for how to name things. And I appreciate Rob's approach to how he writes about it and to all the advice he gives in it. So if you want to know more deeply about naming specifically, my blog is a very good place to go. It talks, it gives links to online resources. So it's very practical and I talk through different techniques. But if you want a book, you can go hit up brand naming from you know Amazon or bookshop.org or wherever you buy your business books. Loving it. I'm actually in your blog right now. It looks amazing. I'm going to also link it in the show notes for people so they could check it out and also the book that you recommended. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun to have you today, Anthony Shore. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Yuval. Thank you. And thank you so much for you, the guests that listen to us. My name is Yuval, the founder of the UX Writing Hub. Feel free to check out the UX Writing Hub blog or our weekly newsletter or our free UX Writing course. If you're interested to get into the field of UX Writing, what we do is UX Writing training. And I want to encourage you to check it out. That's about it. And I'll see you next time. Bye.